Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 136 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Doug Brackman, co-author of the new book, Driven, about meditation and productivity hacks for innovators and entrepreneurs. Today's podcast is sponsored by Clio Legal Practice Management Software. Clio makes running your law firm easier. Try it for free today at Clio.com. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists, and it's smart, charming receptionists who are perfect for small firms. Visit callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial with Ruby. So Sam, last night we just got back from TBD Law number three out in the wilderness in the Ozarks. <laughs> um, it was an awesome few days with some of the country's most innovative and entrepreneurial small firm lawyers, and we had a really great time as always, as we were anticipating, with lots of great discussions and breakouts and new ideas percolating and lots of new relationships. Um, One of the things we have built into the event is that we pick some cool books to give away to attendees. And one of the books we selected for TBD3 was Doug's book, Driven. And it turned out to be the kind of fastest giveaway on the table. They disappeared in no time. Yeah, Yeah, it was very cool. I think in part because we pitched it pretty hard because we both liked it a lot. And so one of the things we talked about as we were giving away these books was how this book is really cool in that it differentiates between a couple of different styles of kind of meditation and brain productivity hacks, um, different from some of the stuff we've talked about in the past. I know a hundred and more episodes ago, we had our friend Gina Cho on the podcast talking about mindfulness meditation and how it is a big growing trend among lawyers. And I think what's interesting is, as you'll hear, Doug and his book differentiate kind of the relaxation, mindfulness meditation techniques that work really well for some people. And what he does with his more focused, what he calls driven meditation is a totally different technique and is designed especially for people who aren't trying to relax, but instead are trying to focus their minds. And that it turns out that different styles of meditation can have completely different effects on your brain. And he spends half of the book discussing neuroscience and genetic trends to describe how different brains need different kinds of things and how most entrepreneurs are actually kind of molded in a way that requires different inputs than a lot of other people. Yeah, I think it's, it is meditation for people who can't relax or, or maybe aren't particularly motivated to relax. I feel like it's if you aren't connecting with mindfulness or other forms of meditation, or, but you really want to experience the benefits of that thing that you know, people talk about how great it is, and it just isn't really working for you. Like me, I, I, if you go back and listen to my podcast with Gina, I really tried to push, you know, I run instead of meditating. And um, she was kind of like, yeah, okay. But I, I think after reading this book, I've realized that part of the reason that works for me is because running lets me focus in a way that I can't when I'm just sitting on the floor. If that feels like you, if you have a hard time sitting on the floor and or sitting in a chair and letting your mind wander and just being okay with that, this is probably more your speed. 
And I really would recommend checking it out. I feel like I learned a lot about myself while reading it. And I've dabbled in the style of meditation that he describes in the book. And I'm trying to sort of get my get the feel of it. But I'm also really interested in signing up for one of his courses because I really want to do the sniper training. Yes, which is, which is the <laughs> one of the core practices of their meditation techniques is learning to become a Navy SEAL sniper. Yeah, which is awesome. And, <laughs> and maybe maybe it needs no more introduction than that. And so maybe we should just hand this over to my conversation with Doug now. My name is Dr. Doug Brockman, and I am a licensed psychologist here in the state of California. And what I do, I teach the highly driven to meditate at gunpoint, which is <laughs> uh, kind of an anti-psychologist, anti-meditation kind of disruptor is kind of what I'm going for. And it, um, it is actually a remarkable tool to teach my very particular type of clientele really the benefits of meditation that they may have been missing most of their lives. So thank you for being with us, Doug. And my business partner, Aaron, says, hey, you should interview Doug. He teaches people how to meditate with sniper training. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm totally in. Like, I'm in for that. <laughs> so tell me, like, what's the problem? What's the what's the issue here and that, that gave rise to this whole thing? So I, I work with a very particular type of client. I've been working in the field, started in the field of addiction about 30 years ago. And in the last 30 years, it's been a, just an amazing time to go through my education and become a psychologist, primarily because of the, the cracking of the human genome mm-hmm. and the functional MRI. I mean, things that we were theoretically <laughs> trying to figure out 30 years ago, we can actually pinpoint now. And it, it is just an amazing time to, to explore the human animal. So the guys I work with are are driven, and that is the title of my book. And, you know, the, the addiction kind of model has really fallen by the wayside in understanding what is happening actually in the body and the brain. And about 10% of the population have uh, basically not adapted to the agricultural world that's been in full bloom now for about the last 3,000 years. So about 10% of the people have maintained this this both neural structure and genetics of, of, of being a hunter. Yeah. And we really are different. And, you know, they call it ADD, they call it OCD, they call it addictive personality, type A personality. They've labeled it, and I keep saying they, the farmers have labeled it all kinds of different things, trying to make us feel like we don't fit in. And often we don't, but... You know, as you and I talked a little bit about before going on air, um, not everybody, you know, at first glance says, you know, hey, that's me. So, you know, some of us slip underneath the radar and can actually feel and look pretty successful, but actually underneath it, we are definitely driven. So we are different. And I like the way that you characterize this as sort of, look, society is basically made up of, um, I mean, there are more than two, but, but two big buckets of roles. Um, one are the people who went out and killed the woolly mammoths and brought home the fur and the, the meat, and the other ones stayed home and tended, you know, wove baskets and <laughs> cured the meat. And, and it's it's not that one is better than the other. Society requires both. But over time, society has required more basket weavers and fewer hunters. 
but obviously there are still hunters left. And I, the macho side of me is totally, um, this appeals to me, of course. But. <laughs> and, yeah, and it, it's, you know, four, five, six thousand years ago, you know, we were all basically in a much more dangerous world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the the need to survive and this, this chronic feeling that there's something needed in our worlds is really the underlying genetics of, of what my expertise is. And to develop a personality and a genetic genome that can tolerate a, a basically an assembly line is, you know, really in the last at least 100 years, you know, has been just cherished in our society. While those of us that make us, you know, want to put a pencil in our eyes if we're sitting in a cubicle somewhere for more than eight hours at a time. Yeah. You know, we just we just don't tolerate it. And, you know, the genetics of boredom, you know, that's the I mentioned that in the book is the this dopamine receptor number two, DRD2, has an allele where 8, 10, 15 percent of the population just doesn't tolerate, you know, sitting still for too long. That's impulsivity. It's the classic ADHD, the big H. And you try to get them to sit in a seat for 10 hours in a row, man, they, they lose their mind. Um, the D4 is a much more interesting, and I, I and you and probably most of my clients fall into that category. And it, it goes back to the wandering gene. And about 10,000, well, 15,000 years ago, you know, most of us were just beginning to spread across the globe. And this genetic kicks in, and this DRD4, the dopamine receptor number four, it makes us feel like the uh, grass is always greener on the other side of the hill. And, you know, it's chronic kind of searching and craving and clinging just for better. And, you know, when we finally get to that point on the horizon where we think the shiny object is, it kind of loses its shine and we jump to the next thing and jump to the next thing and jump to the next thing. So it's, um, we seem to be much more productive in society, but we still have that same driven brain and driven personality. So Am I right that dopamine basically is motivation? It feels like that is pretty much what drives motivation for human beings. So dopamine in all neurochemicals, the body is a trippy thing. We have, you know, 80% of your serotonin is in your stomach. And so Mm -hmm. it it controls digestion and dopamine, you know, not enough dopamine and, you know, is the cause of Parkinson's disease. So... You know, all of these neurochemicals do a whole bunch of different things, but the the lack of dopamine and believing that, you know, this thing in the future will give me dopamine is what most often people experience as motivation, that if I finally get it, then I will feel okay and I'll feel that reward. Hmm. And, you know, the hunters, we just don't feel as rewarded as everyone else. You know, it's harder for us to get our dopamine. I guess maybe it's worth stopping for a minute and um, helping people who are listening, and logically somewhere in the neighborhood of 10% of the listeners are the people we're talking about, how do they identify themselves? So you may have been diagnosed with ADD, ADHD. You know, that really hasn't come into fad and for, you know, for the last 15, 20 years. And so underlying is really an inner world issue of feeling like there's always something not quite right, feeling like there's always something that could be better, you know, you finish a case and I have a bunch of attorneys in my practice. You finish a case and immediately your mind drifts to, you know, your screw ups and you start to catalog in this, you know, to explain why you're still feeling like it wasn't good enough. Hmm. And even if you did a great job, yeah, but it's this underlying kind of ache inside that just feels like we aren't, you know, we could do better. And it, it's subtle in some people and screaming in others. And it just varies. And you explained that, um, you alluded to this already, but this sort of inability to achieve that dopamine hit, or, or it's much harder, leads people 
towards addiction, which is kind of the way that you, that, that was your door into this, this study and into this topic. Addiction is obviously a huge problem among lawyers, which leads me to think that maybe a lot of lawyers are on that spectrum or scale of D2 and D4 ADHD or OCD, and maybe that's what's driving some of that addiction. That risk-taking behavior is sort of inherent to a lot of what lawyers do in the courtroom or in the negotiation room and things like that. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, risk-taking behavior is, you know, if you, you think about a classic farmer, you know, they're wired to not risk the entire crop. You know, what we did last year and what we did the year before and what we did the year before, if it's not broke, do not fix it. Don't mess with it. Where the hunting wiring is everything can be improved. Hmm. And so we're willing to risk and willing to take those, you know, those chances because we might get that hit of dopamine. And, you know, it, it sometimes it plays off and sometimes it doesn't. But in my experience working with all the attorneys I have, it's, uh, you know, both the addiction thing and it's a lack of balance. I mean, yeah. we get, you know, the, the hunters, man, if we think it's a, you know, woolly mammoth on the horizon, we get so driven and hyper-focused towards that one thing. You know, we, you know, the other categories in our life, the friends and families and everything else just fall by the wayside. And some of the trial guys I have just get into, you know, that that hyper focus flow and they're dying on their desk. You know, they're working 60, 70 hours a week. It's that it's that craving for for uh, to get that hit. So your your book is about a set of tools that includes this meditation um, which can be a part of sniper training, and but kind of take us through what are what is the goal of these tools, and what are we trying to do in order to sort of get a handle on this drive and channel it in a more productive direction. One of the basic premises of the book is that you know being driven, having this reward deficiency, um, we essentially have to develop something called insight. You know, the the ability to look into our inner world and really question. What is our central nervous system telling us about what's going on around us? And if we're feeling like there's always something missing or wrong, you'll find it. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it creates this perpetual engine, so to speak, or drive, always just, you know, constantly driven towards, you know, whatever our shiny thing is. The last 15 years, you know, about 15 years ago, a little personal <laughs> disclosure on my own. So I'm finishing my dissertation and losing my mind with that, going through a divorce and, and, broke my leg and basically had my entire world implode, which my central nervous system was telling me, you know, there is no hope. Mm -hmm. And that internal experience forced me to develop a meditation practice and great time to be in psychology because, you know, mindfulness, as you as you mentioned, comes and goes, you know, in the last 30 years, I've watched it kind of go through three big flourishing, you know, kind of gets real popular. And then people figure out, whoa, wait a minute, this sucks. This is hard. <laughs> um, then it kind of falls to the wayside. But then people start to suffer again, their inner world start to, you know, come up and attack them. And they try it again, because at, the, at first glance, it does work. But the misconceptions around what meditation is, is just, it is one of the premises of the book. And meditations designed for farmers do not work for us. We lose our freaking mind um, primarily because the, the brain of the hunter is, is really reversed, mm -hmm. for lack of a better way of explaining it, meaning that we have a, you know, the back of our brains is the occipital lobe or, you know, where our eyesight is. And hunters are primarily eyesight focused. And, you know, we use our eyes as the primary means of going through the world, which allows our frontal lobe 
to do something that that is really quite remarkable is we can attend to um, a greater number of variables at the same time where the farmer is two to three to four variables, we seven, nine, 10, 12 variables at the same time. And so that's a classic definition of ADD or ADHD is that we multi-think or our frontal lobes are hypo or underactive. And combine those two things, you close your eyes as a hunter trying to relax, your frontal lobe just goes nuts and all of a sudden your head's filled with thoughts. Mm. And so, you know, these meditations that are traditionally, you know, a lot of the apps that are out, you know, close your eyes and listen to my nice voice. And you try to do that with a hunting brain and it just makes us feel discontent and restless. And, you know, this does not work for me. I always just fall asleep. Um, but <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so, so, you know, I've been looking for tools to teach meditation. What is true meditation is presenting. And, you know, presenting is the simple technique of actually, you know, getting your central nervous system or your reptilian brain attached to the time machine, which is up in our neocortex, up in our head. And when they're working together and, you know, what's my resonating field is accurate about what's happening around me, we call that flow. And it's very appealing to, you know, any hunter that's in it, you know, whether it's video games or, you know, closing statements to a jury, you get into that flow state where you really feel an experience and, you know, you're just present. Your head is working with your heart and your body and everything's in this, this oneness state of being. That's meditation. I always, I feel it when like I'm working on the website and, you know, digging into the code um, and I'll find sometimes that if I start at 10 o'clock, um, it may feel like I wake up at two o'clock and I don't even, I haven't even eaten. I haven't had anything to drink. <laughs> I haven't gone to the bathroom and it feels like surfacing from the bottom of the pool um, because I've just been fully a hundred percent engaged in what I'm doing for like four or five hours straight. Um, and I think that's what, that's what I associate with flow. And that is yeah. meditation and those t styles of meditation or, or anything that holds us in the present moment, which, you know, the Sanskrit word for, you know, yoking or holding back, you know, yoke is something you put around a bull's neck is mm -hmm. yoga. And these yoga type practices, whether it's downhill skiing or, you know, mountain bike riding or, or surfing or any of these activities that actually hold our presence, you know, to what's happening around us, particularly suited for, for hunters, is the practice of meditation. And, you know, the, the shooting thing is, is just an amazing tool because there is no recoil in the present. Yeah. If you're anticipating the recoil of the rifle, you're not present. You're you're worried about something happening in the future. So it's a phenomenal yoga instrument that really does show us how, as a hunter, man, when we hyper-focus on exactly what's happening now, you know, whether it's code in your computer or whatever else, it is just a blissful, awesome state. Being able to elicit that when you're sitting on a cushion is, is incredibly difficult. So Let's take just a few minutes to hear from our sponsors, and then I want you to talk about how to elicit that Great. and make the connection between cushions and coding or downhill skiing and sniper training and all that kind of stuff because I that's really interesting, and I, I want to hear you talk about it because I'm not sure that I got the full thing from the book. So I want to take a quick break, and then when we come back, I want to hear more about that. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. You could invest in marketing your firm, you could spend more time helping clients in need, or you could catch your daughter's soccer game. 
That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With Clio, tracking time, billing, and matter management are fast and easy, giving you more time to focus on what really matters. And Clio is a complete practice management platform with plenty of tools and over 50 integrations to help you automate daily tasks such as document generation and court calendaring. See how the right software can make it easier to manage your practice. Try Clio for free today at Clio.com. This podcast is supported by Ruby Receptionists. As a matter of fact, Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist, and my firm was a paying Ruby customer before that. Here's what I love about Ruby. When I'm in the middle of something, I hate to be interrupted, so when the phone rings, it annoys me, and that often carries over into the conversation I have after I pick up the phone, which is why I'm better off not answering my own phone. Instead, Ruby answers the phone, and if the person on the other end asks for me, a friendly, cheerful receptionist from Ruby calls me and asks if I want them to put the call through. It's a buffer that gives me a minute to let go of my annoyance and be a better human being during the call. If you want to be a better human being on the phone, give Ruby a try. Go to callruby.com lawyerist to sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. If you aren't happy with Ruby for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks. I'm pretty sure you'll stick around, but since there is no risk, you might as well try. Okay, so Doug, I want to hear you talk more about you know the cushion-style meditation, but also about other activities or, or things. Do it, and I'm particularly interested in like how you integrate the, the, I'm calling it cushion meditation, uh, with sniper, uh, with long range shooting, Great. because I, um, I'm super curious to hear about how that all works together. Not that I'm going to run out and start shooting at things, uh, on my own, <laughs> but I'd like to hear more about it. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it's, you know, Buddhism and guns usually doesn't go together. <laughs> so it's a interesting. But archery, yes. I get a lot of high rolls. Yeah. Archery. Exactly. And so that's basically what we did is, is you know, there's a, 800, 600 year old tradition in, in Japan where they're using bow, bow and arrow and it's called kudo where it, it is an activity, you know, that is designed that, you know, a stepwise activity. The process that you're following is actually the yoga container that you're just hyper focusing on what you're doing right now. And you have memorized these steps and that allows you to actually elicit or create this flow state. And, you know, when meditation is applied to running or, you know, coding or any of those things where you notice your thinking drifting off to something else and then you gently come back to, you know, the line of code and you have to pay very close attention <laughs> to all of these things, um, it, it actually integrates to, and I, I promise my wife that I'll never say brain parts on podcast, <laughs> but it, it starts to connect the parts of the brain that are normally, you know, we're, we're not connected it's not a good thing or a bad thing that we're not connected. We obviously need to not connect sometimes, but being able to elicit this connection is, you know, is gold for hunters and gold for really anybody because it builds this um, capacity to actually just be present to really what's happening around us. So as I, as I'm reading about uh, sort of the cushion meditation component of this, I'm struck by a couple of things that are different from what I've learned about mindfulness. And one is that mindfulness seems, most people who do it um, seem to go for a fairly comfortable seating position and eyes closed. And you focus on an imaginary candle or, a, you know, or you have a, a word or something like that that you focus on. Whereas your, your driven meditation is 
the posture is a little bit more on the verge of action, it almost feels like. Yeah, good. Uh, which, which I A, is more comfortable for me, but B, feels interesting. And you also have eyes open. Yep. And, um, and I assume that has to do with um, the, what you were describing about the, the visual orientation. Correct. And so most, and I go into some detail in the book, yeah. um, and the, the transcendental meditation practices, is a, it's a Hindu practice, and it comes out of a very old tradition um, that predates Buddhism, that predates the Buddha and his styles of meditation. Transcendental meditation, you're trying to transcend reality. You're actually trying to get your central nervous system to resonate on a higher plane and all this, you know, woo-woo stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're you're actually trying to disassociate or disconnect from what's happening around you. And it's bliss. I mean, you you <laughs> feel wonderful. But what's the point of that? You know, you know, you can take a Xanax and have a glass of wine, and it, it gives you that same euphoric kind of, you know, here I am drifting off into space. Right, you're trying to introduce flow. Correct. And so, the Japanese, and as you know, these meditation traditions moved out of northern India, and you know, basically went east and kept going east, and they finally got to Japan, and the. Japanese, the efficiency that they are, really figured out how to get to the, the, the heart of the matter, as they say, and you, you efficiency of trying to elicit this very, very, very intense presence mm-hmm. where your central nervous system is actually accurately reflecting what's happening around you. So you're associating and, you know, that, that, that is where the real benefits of meditation or the style of meditation that, you know, I, true meditation, if you want to call it that, is, is most beneficial. And that, that's proven over and over in the functional MRI. And it, it's, you know, trying to transcend or feel good or feel blissful is not the point. Trying to get an accurate reflection about what's happening around you, you know, and mindfulness is often misunderstood as, as you know, here I am in my mind doing these techniques to get my body to feel very comfortable and very wonderful. Mm-hmm. That is not it. And it's actually bodyfulness. And so you're really becoming curious about what is my central nervous system telling me? You know, and is it accurate about what's happening around me? Which is, you know, Dan Goldman stuff and all the all the emotional intelligence. And to bring it back, like you, you talk about this as um you know, use the example of say a stick versus a snake. Um people who are driven are primed to view the world as a dangerous place and so they blow the stick out of proportion and see it as a snake or potentially even worse they see a snake as a stick and self-sabotage and you got it what we're really trying to do is get you to actually understand what's actually going on in your life uh you know the the small way that i have experienced this is in the evenings my wife goes to bed early um, and so i have a few hours usually in the evening where i'm just sort of on my own and I often experience this feeling of, I got shit to do, but I don't have anything to do. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there and I'm on edge and I can't, I can't just relax. I've never been able to just like watch TV. I need to be doing something. But like, um, you know, so I, I'm like sitting there feeling anxious about feeling like I need to be doing something, but there's actually nothing I have to do. And over time, I finally, you know, come to terms with the fact that I actually have nothing to do. And that's a, I think that's a small example of what you're talking about, where I just have to be fully aware and honest and comfortable with what's actually happening, because what I'm sitting there doing is essentially manufacturing problems for myself. You got it. And you just, you just defined DRD <laughs> 4-7. All right, well, there you go. <laughs> 
So it, it's, I feel guilty when I relax is the classic definition I often say. And so it, it's an inability to actually turn off our engine. It's a, a huge gift. I mean, yeah. that's why we are so successful. And, you know, we if we are not lost in our addictions, we wind up owning most of the stuff in the world because it feels like more is better. I'm working on that, but. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it, it, it's, you know, is it a snake or is it a stick? And, you know, the, this ability to go to neutral. And, you know, that it, it, it is a snake if and it is a stick if. And that's where the benefits of this style of meditation go into this decision making and not sabotaging or sabotaging. And, and more importantly, you start to see others more clearly mm-hmm. and you're able to see into, you know, into others and what is motivating them. And you can see their fear and you start to see this. You see reality more clearly, and that that's really the point of and the main benefits of this style of meditation. There was a description in the book of uh, sort of the point man in a Navy SEAL team right. who is like, hold up, something's going on, and, and can't really point at what it is. Um, but, you know, usually once the team stops and fans out to try and look for it, there's an IED sitting in front of them, or there's uh, somebody crouching in the grass, or and it's because they're aware of so much more than they're aware that they know that they are aware of, I guess. You got and, it. Um, and it's that perception. And once you quiet down the noise and, and let yourself experience that perception, you can be extremely emotionally intelligent. You just have to slow down and look at it, right? Correct. And yeah, and I go into it lightly in the book, and my dad's 80, oh God, he's almost 81 years old, and he's never read a self-help book in his life. And <laughs> I think out of, you know, just out of sheer obligation, he's read my book twice. And it is fact, and it is a neurological, biological fact that we're not living in reality, that we're living in a projection. And when our central nervous system is feeling anxious or feeling, you know, excited, we will actually project that and see in a biased way, you know, what we want to see. And that was my doctoral research was self-fulfilling prophecy or self-sabotage. And it's this ability to actually know that, that no, wait a minute, what am I missing here? And it's an amazing time to be a psychologist because of this this thing called the vagal nerve, and I'm, I promise I won't get too deep into it, but it, it's our gut instincts and, you know, our listening to your gut, hearing your gut. I got a gut feeling, all of these, you know, ways of trying to tap into this thing. The style of meditation I teach, and that that's really the main benefit that I see most of my clients experience within six months or a year of really making this a cornerstone of their life, is they're starting to register something that they, they were missing before. Hmm. And so you, you're dropping your biased perceptions and you're starting to become curious. You know, it's a classic mindful, curious about what am I seeing and actually what am I not seeing? Mm-hmm. And that will start to open up our senses and actually <laughs> builds capacity in our gut instincts or this dorsal vagal system and ventral vagal system to get a more accurate feeling about what's happening around us. You know, and human beings were just a herding or a tribal animal like everyone else. And we lived in little family groups and herds. And, you know, the gazelle at the front of the herd, when it gets scared, the whole herd feels this fear. Right. But whose fear, whose fear are they actually feeling? Mm-hmm. Is it mine? Is it yours? Is it, the, is it my, you know, associates? Is it, you know, the judges? Is it, and the ability to sort that out is a 
unbelievably powerful emotional intelligent tool. Hmm. As you start to get into this and you start to experience that in a way that is, as I always say, and it's, you can write about bubble gum, you can talk about bubble gum, you can, but until you taste bubble gum, you don't know what bubble gum is. Mm -hmm. But once you start to taste it and you really experience the benefits of this style of meditation, it's like, whoa, game changer. So do you mind talking about how um, you integrate the cushion meditation with the activity, the sniper training, yep. um, or the, the long distance shooting? And, and how, how does it work if you wanted to integrate it into another type of activity? I don't have access to a sniper rifle and a shooting range and an instructor <laughs> to make it safe, um, or even a bow and arrow, but I like to go running. Um, I like to do other activities, and I'm wondering if I could do something similar until I have time to attend your workshop. So I say this almost every day. The, one of the hardest things I do every day is is sit in a meditative position on a cushion looking at a candle. <laughs> Um, and that's a good day if that's the hardest thing I got to do today. But what makes it actually hard is that the, you know, the split between my body and my brain or my neocortex, my new brain, you know, the new brain is a time machine and it's constantly drifting off to the future and the past and worrying about, you know, what's not happening right now. And as the Buddha talked about, you take refuge in your body, meaning that you, you become aware and of what's happening in your central nervous system you know, the reptilian brain and what's happening in the reptilian brain is always happening right now. You know, I teach a very specific style of, of meditation that actually triggers the vagal nerve to send up these calming, you know, calming impulses into the brainstem. And it allows us to actually calm our central nervous system down to this point of neutral. Then when you, you know, you stand up basically from the cushion and approach the rifle, you start to feel all kinds of anticipatory adrenaline and excitement and all of these things. And you're building this thing called interioception or your ability to actually experience what is my central nervous system doing. And if you can do that without judgment, you can then gently come back to, you know, what is really happening now. And so you're basically learning to call bullshit on yourself over and over and over and over again. And that learning to call bullshit on yourself or killing oneself, as I talk about in the book, you know, is the core of, of this style of meditation to where I'm no longer in my way of whatever activity I'm doing. And, you know, sitting on the cushion is by far the hardest thing where, you know, returning email meditations or talking. I did a making breakfast for my kid meditation for years where my head would drift off to where I'm supposed to be in 10 minutes or two days or whatever it is. And I gently come back to the French toast <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and appreciate the whole experience of, you know, in this, this core of what I talk about in the book of mastery is that we are constantly running over everything throughout our day is this is not important. That is not important as this thing, I, other thing I got to do to do. And so we're constantly, you know, not living life. Today is not preparation for some other day. Today is the day. <laughs> and so when you apply this principle and this philosophy that, you know, just return this one email, your efficiency goes through the roof. Just apply, you know, just explore this one bit of code or just explore, you know, flipping the French toast. And it, it's difficult, but it's actually way easier than staring at a candle. But staring at a candle, you know, while I'm sitting in this very specific posture that I talk about in the book, it actually directly connects the mind and the body is why posture is, you know, presented in that way. Um, it is very difficult to be just in your body and present mm -hmm. unless you're actually in my body present 
making French toast because then I can notice the smells and notice the flip and notice all of these other things that are actually happening right now. And so that becomes the container or the yoga that holds me there. And I gently drift away and gently come back. And, you know, listening to your clients, which, you know, as I say to all my attorneys, you know, if everyone was living in reality, we'd all be out of a job because, you know, our job as, you know, as counselors or whatever is to help sort people's reality out. But if I'm in in the way of that, if my reality is overpowering my ability to see their reality, then we got two problems. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, the, the guys I work with, particularly the you know, the attorneys where they can drop their own stuff that's in the room and they can really hear or listen to their client, both what they're saying in their words and actually what they're experiencing in their body. You get a much clearer picture of, you know, what you need to do to actually help somebody. So it's uh, applying meditation to running or, you know, French toast or, you know, code or listening to one of your clients um, is actually way easier than sitting on the cushion. Mm-hmm. And so in a way, sitting on the cushion is the, is the preparation, though, for that challenging task. You got as it. As well. Okay. You got it. So it, it's, you know, what happens on the cushion is, you know, I say it in the book, is what happens on the cushion is almost irrelevant. Mm-hmm. You know, how it's applied to the rest of your life is where the gold is. And, you know, doing something that is so unbelievably challenging sitting on a cushion, um, when I go to the French toast, it seems easier. When I go to, you know, listening to a really interesting case for a client, it's really interesting. Yeah. So it's a much easier thing to engage in. And then when my thoughts come and drift off and I think about, you know, what I had for breakfast, I'm much, ab- you know, much more able to bring my mind back to what's happening now. In, in your book, after you, you talk about meditation and, and then you start talking about some other tools, and I was, I was surprised but also pleased to see David Allen's Getting Things Done come up very quickly. And, mm-hmm. and I, I, as soon as I read that, it made sense to me uh, because you'd been talking about the importance of um, the process, not the goal. And like, you know, every, over the last few Olympics, they've talked about um, what it takes to succeed, and the Olympians keep saying, you have to enjoy practice. Yep. Um, you keep the goal in mind, but you have to enjoy the practice and you have to live for the practice. And I think uh, in, in the similar way, getting things done is um, it's all about you don't have to accomplish the goal today. You don't have to start the business. You don't have to launch the product. You don't have to sell a thousand units. You just have to do the next thing. Right. You just have to go and get right. the papers from the secretary of state's office. You don't have to found it today. You just have to go get the papers. And like it's that sort of. Um, backing off from the goal and just just keep moving, just keep doing the next thing. Um, it intuitively makes sense, and I was pleased because I feel like getting things done was a, a moment that I can point to that um, changed my life in a really positive way because it allowed me to um, channel my energy and my focus on t- in a in a much more manageable way. Right, and that that yeah, I know I love David Allen. He did change my life too. And the resistance, you know, my doctoral research was done fifty. God, almost 20 years ago now. And I I wrote about, you know, the resistance to doing things. Mm -hmm. And I talk about in the book and I start everybody I work with, whether they're, you know, daily meditators or not, to feel the resistance in their bodies of actually keeping a meditation practice. And I, you know, work with some really bright, incredibly motivated people. This one minute meditation that I suggest everyone start with, it's incredibly difficult 
to actually continue it. January is just a horrible experience at the gym. Why? Because everybody's <laughs> monkey mind has convinced <laughs> yeah, exactly because everybody in the world has got this great idea, you know, this great belief system going in their head, convincing them that, you know, this year is going to be different. But what happens is the central nervous system, you know, human beings don't want, you know, better, safer, faster, stronger, richer. What we want is actually the familiar. Mm-hmm. And that's a subconscious or, you know, central nervous system biological fact that as our world starts to change, we have a physical resistance to continuing that behavior. Continuance of behavior then, you know, is either rationalized, it's okay, I'll go to the gym tomorrow, or I'll do it later, or I'll do it after dinner. And once the mind is actually, you know, the neocortex and the new brain is making some narrative about why this resistance should be there, Mm. we're, we're toast. And that is sabotage. But that meeting that resistance, and this is one of the key takeaways of that book, my book, is meeting that resistance with curiosity, in particular, not you know catching the narrative you're going to make in your head about why it's okay not to return this email right now or whatever, but then experiencing what's happening in the present. Because as, you know, there is no resistance in the present. There's none. Hmm. Or never, there can't be biologically. And so as you start to feel your feet gently walking towards the, the cushion or you feel your hands going to just this one email and you just do this one thing, there is no resistance. And all of a sudden you just, as David Allen, you get it done. Yeah. But knowing what you, you know, and he does a masterful job at organizing your life in a way that you know what you need to do next and what are the big tasks and the little tasks and, you know, what buckets you should put stuff in. And and then if you have no resistance and you have David Allen, it is, I mean, it's remarkable how much crap you can get done. (laughs) It's Yeah. And um, you never notice you're doing it. You just look backwards and you're like, oh, I did all this stuff. Right. You know, the whole day then becomes a meditation practice of getting things done. Mm-hmm. It's a very, you know, Japanese, you know, you just chop wood, you just carry water, you just return the email, you just make French toast, or you just do this one, you know, whatever it is in front of you. And then if you organize your life in a way with David Allen's or, you know, I give some other suggestions in the book too, God, your, your world just becomes so different. And more importantly, you can tolerate the success. Because you can feel that resistance and you're talking about bandwidth. You start to have the bandwidth, you know, that you can tolerate more in your body without believing there's a snake in front of you or, you know, sabotaging. And so it's a, it's, it works. Well, if people are interested in finding out if this is a book they ought to read, um, you have a, a test, a survey on highlydriven.life. Yep. And um, the book was handed to me as something I ought to read. Um, and then I took the the test about halfway through to to confirm for me that my suspicions were correct and that I should be considering some of these tools. But if you're curious as you're sitting here listening, go to highlydriven.life. We'll include the link in the show notes uh, and you can take the assessment and find out if you might benefit from the book. And if you if you do show up as somebody who's highly driven, I would recommend you take it. I think even if you ultimately decide that some of these things aren't for you, uh, I think the book will really help you get to know yourself better because that was my experience in reading it. So there's my plug for you anyway. <laughs> I appreciate that, Sam. That's yeah. great. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for being with us today and for taking us through this. And yeah, I mean, anybody who hasn't really connected with 
traditional meditation if they've tried it. I think this is a, a great thing to try, but the other tools in there I think will just lead to a better life if you can get your get your head around them and, and start doing some of them. So I appreciate that and I agree. All right, thanks, Doug. Thanks, Sam. Make sure to catch next week's episode of the Lawyerist Podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit lawyerist.com slash podcast or legaltalknetwork.com. You can subscribe via iTunes or anywhere podcasts are found. Both Lawyerist and the Legal Talk Network can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and you can download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play or iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said during this podcast is legal advice. 